Happy Thursday and welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Virginia Allen and today I have two amazing Problematic Women here in studio with me, Kate Trinko and Genevieve Wood. Thank you all so much for being here. Great to be here. It's pretty awesome. (laughs) Well, Lauren has just become an aunt, so she is down in Florida with her family. We miss her very much in the office, but she will be back next week. But we definitely have a great show planned for you all today. We'll be discussing a new lawsuit by three high school female athletes who are suing the Connecticut Interscholastic Athletic Conference over a policy that allows biological males to compete as girls with biological females. We also break down dress-wearing Billy Porter's recent appearance on Sesame Street, a new bill out of Alabama that would mandate vasectomies, a powerful interview with Linda King, founder of Fix the Hurt, a nonprofit that raises awareness about dating violence. And of course, we'll be crowning our problematic woman of the week. Let's dive right in. An Alabama state lawmaker says it's time to curb men's reproductive rights. Representative Rolanda Harris, a Democrat, has introduced new legislation that would mandate vasectomies. The legislation states, under existing law, there are no restrictions on the reproductive rights of men. This bill would require a man to undergo a vasectomy within one month of his 50th birthday or the birth of his third biological child, whichever comes first. On Twitter, Harris wrote in response to a tweet about the bill, The vasectomy bill is to help with the reproductive system. This is to neutralize the abortion ban bill. The responsibility is not always on the women. It takes two to tangle. This will help prevent pregnancy as well as abortion of unwanted children. Harris appears to be referring to the abortion ban Alabama Governor Kay Ivey, a Republican, signed into law last year. That legislation made it a felony to perform an abortion in most circumstances. Senator Ted Cruz tweeted about the bill, Yikes! A government big enough to give you everything is big enough to take everything, literally. So, Genevieve, Virginia, what do you guys think? Should we mandate vasectomies? Wow. I mean, just when you think you've heard it all, you hear a state legislator come up with something like like this. Look, this is, I think, nothing more than really going after the idea that if we can possibly find new ways to prevent more children coming into the world, we want to get on that bandwagon. I mean, this is not about abortion. This is about sterilizing people. Mm -hmm. I mean, for somebody to say that this is, well, you're taking reproductive rights away from women. No. When you're promoting pro-life legislation, you're actually promoting reproduction. Uh, It's when you're saying that we should be doing everything we can to increase abortions, which I'm going to guess this lawmaker is also for, uh, that you're going against reproductive rights. Women have the right to reproduce. And this particular law would suggest that a man, I guess if you've had three children, that's that's enough for you. Or if you're 50, uh, we're getting into ageism here and say now you're too old to be a father. Uh, there's a lot of things wrong with this on the face of it. And I, I'm shocked that it's even getting the light of day, frankly, in a state like Alabama. No, it's it very, very clearly a political statement of of this lawmaker trying to say, OK, an abortion, having an abortion is, you know, kind of the same as a man having a vasectomy. She's trying to kind of make this. These are on par, same level. So if we can tell a woman that she can't have an abortion, we should be able to tell a man that he has to have a vasectomy. But obviously, the, the <laughs> there's many, many differences between those two operations, but there is a second life involved with abortion, and that's the life of the child. And that argument is completely lost here. Absolutely. And I think, you know, as one of five children, although the first, so I guess I would have made it under this law. <laughs> I Yeah, stopping at three, and as Genevieve says, the ageism of 50 is pretty appalling. Well, and I mean, what what is this, communist China? I mean, are we now getting into with the government's telling people how many children they can have, by what age you should have them? The next step, it'll be you've got to have you've got to make this certain amount of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got to be able to live in a certain level. Uh, and and or now we're going to get into it. They've got to either be males or they've got to be females or you can have one of each. I mean, the government has absolutely no business in this realm beyond protecting an individual's right to life. Uh, People don't get into this on the pro-life side because they want to tell people they must have children or you have so many children and you can't. That's not why people get into the pro-life arena. They get into it because they believe it's protecting an individual who is at risk because they can't protect themselves as an unborn child. 
That's why people come into this field. And on the other side, frankly, it sounds a lot like people saying, no, we want to start dictating what families should look like and what society should accept in terms of what a family size is. Some really disturbing things there. So one thing that I, I'm almost scared to admit in this room, but I do think Harris, the lawmaker, has a slight point in that she says, you know, it takes two. Unwanted pregnancies should not be seen as a woman's problem. They should be seen as a man and a woman's problem. How can the pro-life movement encourage men to take responsibility? You know, I think this so comes back to an issue of the family and the home that if you have young men being raised without a father present and there's no one teaching them how to be men, how to to do what they're naturally created to do, which is to be protectors, to be providers, you know, you're going to see a cycle repeating itself of you know, a guy gets a woman pregnant and, well, hey, it's it's much easier, it's much cheaper just to split than it is to actually take on that responsibility. So there, there's a real um, sort of societal foundation issue that I think has to be fixed of a generation of, of men being raised to be fathers and to be caretakers. Yeah. And, and legally, though, you can do some things. I mean, at the state level, for example, uh, you know, if somebody is the father of a child, depending on the state's rules, they've got to pay for that child in terms of their education and the like up to, I think, the age of, of 18. And I know, for example, in the state of Texas, uh, their wages are garnished if, if they don't pay up. So you can't just say, well, you know, you hear about these guys, well, they haven't paid child support in 15 years or five years, whatever it is. You can't get away with that in some states because the state comes after you and says, we will take your check before you get it if you're not paying for the child that you help bring into this world. So I think there are some things we can do to make people more responsible in the sense once the child gets here. But to Virginia's point, uh, the idea that, you know, we can have children, have them outside of families, and it's all going to be okay. There's a reason God created families, and that's where that's where children should be raised. Yeah, and I wonder if here, if maybe some cultural shaming would be good. I mean, it seems that like very few mothers abandon their children, but unfortunately with fathers, we see even if they pay child support, there seem to be a lot of men who are comfortable just not being in their kids' lives. And I don't it's know. It's not okay. Yeah. <laughs> don't date a guy who does that. So abortion is widely legal in the United States. The Alabama law is actually held up by the courts right now. A judge blocked it back in October. So this ban that everyone's so angry about isn't even really happening. Why is the left so angry about pro-life measures that we get bills like this? You know, they're perpetually outraged uh, and there, there's no topic. Unlike that, you, Jennifer. Yeah, unlike me. I'm perpetually optimistic. Um, no, well, you know, because look, I, I think hey, this gets at to something they hold so dear, which is to do and live however you want. And you get to be the, the master of your own domain, so to speak. And that includes, you know, if you are out and you get pregnant and, you know, the decision is made that's going to hurt your career or you're not ready yet. It's going to hold you back in some way that you get to take that life. And I mean, that's exactly what it is. And I, But I think the reason you see today why they're so concerned about it is because more and more Americans see it for what it is, that it is a life. And I think they're very concerned that if you start curbing at one level, if we mm-hmm. say, well, you can't. You can't do it at nine months and or you can't do it after the baby's at six months. Where does it stop? I mean, they, they see this as their slippery slope, so to speak. I think it's a real slippery slope. I think they see it. And so they're going to fight at every level to keep abortion legal because they realize if they give up even in one area, like the end of pregnancy or at six months of pregnancy, they think it's going to go all the way back. And it's so it's so part of the fabric of their talking points for the progressive left. Abortion has just become sort of their standard and their platform and a, a message, quite frankly, that it's kind of easy just to shout, you know, it's part of health care. It's part of women's rights. It's become uh, just this very, very common talking point. So, Genevieve, I think you're absolutely right that the idea for them of taking any steps backwards on that abortion front is so, so threatening really to their whole platform. And I also wonder, and this is rampant speculation on my part that may not be fair, but with some of these issues where emotion just seems so, so high, is there maybe a bit of guilty conscience going on here? And do these people think that like, oh, maybe I won't feel guilty if pro-lifers shut up? Like the reason I feel bad is people are being mean. And it's like, no, it's actually something in you recognizes that that was the wrong decision. It has nothing to do with the political grandstanding. But I think they think that maybe if they can just shut up pro-lifers, they'll shut up the voice within. Well, I mean, the thought of someone who has championed abortion and has said for so long that, you know, a a child in the womb is not a life. That thought of, 
wait a second, what if all of a sudden it is declared, no, that is a real life, having to live with that guilt and that shame and those decisions that you made and those Mm -hmm. laws that you fought for, that's a weighty reality. Yeah, and I think the conscience of the nation is is loud. And I think it it has been loud now since Roe v. Wade became the law of the land. Uh, I think there was a great hope on the the pro-abortion side of that equation that eventually it would just go away, that eventually the uproar would end. But instead, the pro-life movement's grown. I mean, you know, I I don't know what the numbers were this year at the march, but I think they were very large again. And again, it's a lot of young people. So they don't see it going away. Uh, And what they do see is technology showing more and more and being able more and more to save the life of a baby at a younger and younger age. And so I I just think that they're facing a lot of challenges. And I'm sure for those who've staked their political careers, but also just their cause, if you will, on it, I think it's a scary time. Yeah. And of course, we should note, if you are a post-abortive woman, there are lots of resources out there to help you, counseling available. I know of one that's called Project Rachel. So there's definitely check out Project Rachel and other organizations that help women who have gone through this. All right. Thanks so much, Kate. We are going to dive into our second topic. So singer, actor, and LGBTQ plus activist Billy Porter made an appearance on Sesame Street wearing a dress. He appeared in the show's soon-to-be-released 51st season, but Porter's clothing choice has called the traditional innocence of the show into question. On January 30th, Sesame Street tweeted photos of Porter on the show wearing the same black velvet tuxedo gown that he wore on the red carpet of the Academy Awards in February of last year. When Porter first wore the dress, he told Vogue magazine, Quote, my goal is to be a walking piece of political art every time I show up to challenge expectations. What is masculinity? What does that mean? Women show up every day in pants, but the minute a man wears a dress, the seas part. More than 56,000 people have signed a LifeSite petition asking Sesame Street not to air the show with Porter dressed in drag. LifeSite wrote, the long-running children's program is one of the last mainstream institutions to try to sexualize children using drag queens. Porter's response to the outrage was, if you don't like it, don't watch it. And in another quote, he said, stay out of my bedroom and you'll be fine. That is none of your business. President of the Family Research Council, Tony Perkins, responded to the situation in a recent op-ed saying, personally, I don't want to know what Porter or anyone else does in private. I do, however, care if it's flaunted in front of my kids. All right, Genevieve and Kate, let me get your initial reactions. Well, first of all, he doesn't know a lot about fashion, not Tony, <laughs> but our, our friend here, Porter, uh, because, you know, can say Tony Perkins also doesn't know a lot. About <laughs> no, fashion. I'm not, not going to be that hard on Tony. Uh, no, I mean, look, go to Scotland where men have in the past and even today traditionally wear kilts. Those are skirts. You go to other parts of the Middle East and you see men wearing tunics that are not pants. It's about the place and what you're doing. That is not what Porter was wearing, okay? Mm -hmm. He was wearing an outfit that looks like it belonged on a woman. And it's just like when a woman wears pants to work, which all none of us today, I'm looking around, we all have (laughs) have dresses on here. Uh, But, you know, we've all worn pantsuits. But, you know, if you try to look like a a man's pants, people kind of look at you a little bit differently. Look, this is all about... Not trying to push the envelope. It totally is. Sesame Street has all, I mean, its history has been like we want to expose children to different things, some of which are good, some of which in this case I would argue are not good and it's not their particular role. But, I mean, he he's bringing his agenda into the public square. And Tony is right about this. Look, you want to wear that in your house or you want to wear it out shopping on your own time? That's fine. I don't care. But when you're wearing it on television trying to expose children that don't belong to you mm-hmm. uh, on, the, on, the, on the airwaves, that's a different story. Well, so Billy Porter has gone to several awards shows in uh, the recent award season wearing dresses. And, you know, cynically, I'm like, this is a ploy to get attention. He's been getting a lot of media attention. He was not exactly a household name. He was not on my radar at all. And now he very much is. So, you know, at first I was like, well... Is he? He doesn't wear. We should know. He doesn't wear like feminine hair. He doesn't wear feminine makeup. So I was like, well, what is? Is this just to get attention? Is he trying to say something about gender? And you know, I mean, as Genevieve said, women didn't used to wear pants. I'm very happy women can now wear pants. I'm a little weirded out by the guys in America wearing skirts and dresses, <laughs> but I'm not 
in principle opposed. I mean, it would be weird, but I don't think there's anything inherently wrong about that if it becomes masculine fashion. But I found this interview that he did with Allure magazine, and it's kind of a long quote, but I want to share it because I think it shows that he has more of an agenda in mind than just, you know, allowing men to wear new clothing. And he says there, the heteronormative construct that masculinity is better silenced me for many years. It was like my masculinity was in question before I could even comprehend the thought. I was sent to a psychologist at five years old because I was a sissy and my family was afraid. I love them. They didn't know. It was a different time. And then the reporter asked him if he remembered meeting with the psychologist. And he said, that's one of the first memories I have as a child, that something's wrong with you and you need to be fixed based on you're not masculine enough. I carried that with me for my whole life until like two and a half minutes ago, you know? So I'm not really sure about that ending, which feels like he got very flip all of a sudden. But that struck me as really interesting. One, he doesn't go into any details. And I'm very curious what he was doing at five that if he's reporting this accurately, had his family so concerned. But it also just struck me as interesting that he had this experience at five and now he's trying to tell other children what like it's okay to question your gender or if it was for something like I, I don't know what he means by the word sissy but like maybe he was more caring than a lot of other little boys maybe he liked fashion and other little boys didn't I would say the answer there is that's not inherently unmasculine mm-hmm. to be that way and sometimes I think the problem that we have in today's world is we pick the most stereotyped version of each gender and are like if you deviate from that you're not masculine you're not feminine instead of realizing there are a wide range of expressions available to both men and women so I don't know what the story is here with Billy Porter but this is not the right way to address children who might be going through what he himself went through yeah no I think we do such a disservice to little girls and little boys if a little boy likes playing dolls with his sister Mm -hmm. or a little girl likes climbing trees like that's normal that's natural that's fine and the second society starts slapping labels on that like stop they're they're being kids allow them just to be kids and, and to do what they enjoy. Some of the greatest designers in fashion history have been men, who, by the way, not all are gay. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm thinking of Ralph Lauren just off the top of my head, but there are a lot of others. So the idea that a guy likes clothes doesn't mean that, that you know, he must be overtly feminine or, I mean, some of the world's greatest chefs are men. But yet at the same time, a lot of people think of those as like feminine type roles. But look, all of that aside, clearly he was trying to make a political statement a societal, cultural statement. And he was doing it not on his own time, right, but in front of children. That's who he's trying to persuade. And again, it's, you know, I guess Sesame Street I learned recently is is actually an HBO production. It's no longer a PBS production. But nonetheless, you, you know, you got to watch what your children are watching. What do you all think about Porter's argument that if you don't like it, don't watch it? I think that's fine, except that there's a lot of stuff on TV that I wouldn't watch or let anybody under, well, frankly, of any age watch, (laughs) but certainly not children. And, you know, it's sad that we have to be at that place today, but I think you really have to be at that place today. You cannot assume that something that's labeled a children's program or for young adults or whatever it happens to be, or even something that's got the, the label family on it is going to line up with what the values are of your family. And so I just think we have to all be very careful. I think, yeah, on the one hand, it's true. You can boycott Sesame Street. I'm sure families will. At the same time, though, you know, this goes into the bigger issue we have, which is, you know, the left always acts like the right are the culture war types, but they're the ones who keep reaching into more and more spaces. You know, Sesame Street, I guess, is going to be another thing that was non-controversial during my childhood, that if I have children of my own, is going to have to be another hard parenting decision. And I don't really understand why. Well, I mean, I do understand in the sense of like the left probably thinks correctly that if you influence children, you are much more likely to retain that influence when they become adults. Now is the time. So I don't think it should be surprising, but it certainly makes life tougher for parents and I think divides our country further. You know, I um, my parents were bizarrely strict as a child and I wasn't allowed to see Full House because <laughs> the little Olsen twin character was disrespectful to her parents, believe it or not. It was a different time back in the 80s. You know, but I remember like my classmates would see Full House and I felt left out that I couldn't discuss the latest episode. It seems crazy that you can now be left out on the playground because you don't watch Sesame Street. Like that's 
that's unfortunate. <laughs> but it is a politicization, if, if you will, of the public square. I yeah. mean, and no matter where you turn, whether it's sports, whether it's entertainment, uh, there is now some agenda that's being that's being pushed. And frankly, not only is it bad in the sense that you have to be carefully more and more what your children or even what you yourself are watching. And there's, I'm shocked sometimes when I'm watching a show that I think is going to be like, what just came on? <laughs> but it, it does divide us, I think, as communities. And I have to believe that most families don't want their five-year-old or what are the exact age ranges now for Sesame Street facing those even more liberal parents who might be okay with like, you know what, I'm not really ready to have that discussion yet with my five-year-old. Can you let them be five just for a moment? Mm -hmm. And I just think, especially with the sexual agenda, that is being forced at a younger and younger age in our schools, in entertainment, really everywhere you look. So is there any hope that we can offer to our parents listening who are thinking, Gosh, this is not like it was when I was a kid. How how do I navigate this? How do I navigate raising a child? And what can I do to actually be a part of kind of pushing back against this very progressive narrative? Well, this is where I realize we don't have a single parent on the show this day. <laughs> Jimmy, which means we're real experts. <laughs> That's true. We know exactly what we're talking about. I mean, I guess the hope is, thank God for things like VeggieTales, which you can still show to your kids. <laughs> the truth is, I think there is a lot more variety today than there was in years past, partially because this isn't something that just happened last week. This has been going on, creeping in. All the way back to the 80s in Full House, apparently. <laughs> uh, but no, it's been going on for a long time. And that's why you've had Focus on the Family and all these other different groups that have produced Veggie Tales, among a lot of other children's type of programming, because people saw that increasingly the very values they're trying to ingrain in their children uh, were being eroded as soon as they turned on the TV or walked out the door or went to school. So I think, you know, it's not surprising you see a rise in homeschooling, you see a rise in children going to private schools, all these different things, because of, it's not just happening on Sesame Street. It's, again, it's happening almost anywhere you take your children. All right. We are going to take a quick break. You know, it's so easy to get overwhelmed by the 24-7 news cycle. Our news just never stops these days. So if you're looking for a way to keep up with the news that matters, the Daily Signal podcast brings you the top news of the day. I co-host the Monday edition with my colleague Rob Bluey to bring you interviews with lawmakers, authors, and conservative activists. And of course, we always start your week off right with a good news story. So if you are a conservative who wants to be on top of the news, check out the Daily Signal podcast available every weekday morning. So, big news last week in feminism. Three high school girls are fighting back because they're tired of competing against athletes who were born biologically male, but they're competing against them in women's sports. I'm going to quote at length from the reporting the Daily Signal's Fred Lucas did. He got an interview two of the young women involved in this new lawsuit. So, as Fred wrote, Chelsea Mitchell and two other girls from different Connecticut high schools, Alana Smith and Selena Soule, are suing the Connecticut Interscholastic Athletic Conference over the policy that allows biological males to compete as girls with biological females in high school sports. The suit, filed last week in the U.S. District Court for the District of Connecticut, claims that the state athletic conference is violating Title IX, the section of federal law designed to protect equal athletic opportunities for women and girls. The lawsuit states that the two biological males who now identify as females have won 15 girls' state championship titles and taken more than 85 opportunities to participate in higher-level competitions from female track athletes in the 2017, 2018, and 2019 seasons alone. Last year, The Daily Signal did an interview with Selena Soule, one of the three young women who's suing. Here's what she had to say about competing against transgender athletes. It's very frustrating and heartbreaking when us girls are at the start of the race and we already know that these athletes are going to come out and win no matter how hard we try. Freshman year in outdoor, I saw at the 200 start this girl who looked kind of masculine. Uh, her arms were much more defined than the average girls, and same with her legs, but she had long hair, long braided hair, and I didn't think much of it, and then I watched the race, and I saw that this girl was blowing away the competitors, and I thought, hey, this isn't right, this usually doesn't happen, and then later that in that same meet, I found out that athlete was a transgender female, and then in outdoor last year, there was another transgender that 
came out, and she competed as a male for three seasons and was a mediocre as a male, and then ended up transitioning over to female, and again blew everyone out of the competition. So Genevieve Virginia, what do you think about this lawsuit? Well, I, I think it's going to be, I don't know if it's the very first, but it's it's certainly one of the first of its kind. But I think, sadly, we're going to see a lot more like them because of this problem cropping up all over the country. It's not just Connecticut. Uh, this isn't the only girls high school track team, I think, that's having this this challenge. And this is something I know that as we've covered this story, we see how feminist are increasingly outraged by this. Because as a lawsuit states, uh, you have materially reduced the number of opportunities for women in high schools in Connecticut to win a track meet. And that's not just, well, they don't get another blue ribbon. This affects people who are trying to go to college and trying to get a scholarship. That now is is taken away from these young women in these cases because other folks who are male who are saying that they identify as female are able to compete and get them. So, you know, if you're a guy who's thinking, well, maybe if I can get a track scholarship, if I just cross over, and I'm not saying it's that, that flipping of a decision, but that in essence can be happening here. And so you're hurting women in these scenarios. You're taking opportunities away from them and giving it to biological males. And supposedly that was one of the very things Title IX was trying to stop. I'm really proud of these girls for stepping up. They're so young. They're just in high school. But I think they recognize the fact that what's going on is much larger than themselves. It's it's much larger than their own scholarships. It's much larger than their own state competitions. And it's a very gutsy and bold move to essentially say, OK, we're going to you know, give our, our time, our attention, our resources, our reputations to this. It's very bold. I'm very proud of them. And one of the things we should note, because I at least have learned a lot more about men playing women's sports than I ever intended to, is while some of these, and I don't know off the top of my head what the Connecticut uh, High School Conference has, but some of them do require like levels of testosterone be below a certain level or something that shows the effect of you taking hormones. But at the same time, you know, you still have the bone structure of a guy. You have other inherent advantages. You're probably taller in a lot of situations. So even if you're doing the hormones or the gender transition treatment, that doesn't mean you've lost the advantages of being biologically male. I don't know how it would apply if someone transitioned when they were really young, but I think it's important to note you know, we're told it's not politically correct to bring up these specific things. We're not supposed to ask about them, but they really do play a role here. Well, and Kate, in any of the stories that the Daily Signal has covered, and there have been numerous ones, this is not the only case, the guy always wins. I mean, I don't know any particular coverage here where the girl has ended up beating the guy. I mean, in every single one of these, the the one who's a biological male who's saying that he's now identifying as a woman or as a girl is winning the race or whatever the athletic event is, weightlifting. So it's it's not really like, well, sometimes it works out that way. No, it's that way every single time. So Genevieve, you brought up that feminists are upset about this. Some are. Some are. Do you think there's a tension between the goals of feminism and the goals of at least the transgender part of the LGBT movement? Well, I think they're beginning to to come at odds. Um, it's because you're seeing in this particular scenario, um, look, if I can say and identify as being anything, anyway, it doesn't matter what I am biologically, the game's, you know, it, everything's up in the air. There are no rules, really. And it becomes very hard, frankly, to kind of de- decide what the rules should be when you're in that scenario. I and mean, we've done panels here at Heritage where we've talked to some very radical feminists, I would call them, who don't agree with the conservative policy arena and almost any other sphere, but who were very concerned about this because they have fought so long for what they believe are women's rights. And now they're seeing a whole group of men, in this case, coming in and kind of taking on those rights because they take on that identity. We had uh, Natasha Chart, who is the chairman of the board of Woof on the podcast. Uh, Woof is Women's Liberation Front. She came to Heritage for an event last year and came on Problematic Women and talked about this very issue. I mean, she is on the far left and uh, very much a feminist, but she she laid out very clearly, you know, as as women, this space is ours and we've worked hard to earn our right to operate in these spaces of professional sports and so on and so forth. And it's definitely not the right of men to encroach on that space. You know, look at the the women's basketball, for example, and they have their own their own professional league now, which, you know, is still not as popular as, as the men's NBA, but it's, it's gained a lot of ground in recent years. Uh, what if one day, you know, 60 percent, 70 percent of the players in the WNBA, women's NBA, are biological men? 
Okay, so all those those young women who would have had those opportunities in the basketball court uh, won't have those anymore if we're going to keep going in this direction. And right. what about the Olympics? I mean, women's Olympic sports and the like, you're already seeing that debate taking place. Uh, you know, you could get to a place where almost every single one of these spots is actually taken by somebody who's a male. Right, which really is not the goal of feminism. And I think it's interesting. I think, you know, we're seeing the mainstream media doesn't want to cover the feminists who are concerned about where the transgender movement is taking. They want to pretend that everything is great. But I think these women, to be clear, I don't think they would probably agree with me on basically anything else. But they are pointing out that, you know, one, it's not fair. And two, whatever femininity is, it's not something that if you weren't born with it, you can just take it and have exactly the same experience. And I think that's something that Sometimes there's a bit of misogyny in the transgender movement that seems to deny the reality of women's experience. So that's definitely um, a tension. Well, this idea that we can all live and let live, as it turns out, isn't really true, right? Because Mm -hmm. people who are out for their own rights, it starts colliding with other people's rights. Mm -hmm. And so I think you're beginning to see that here. And and the media doesn't want to cover it because these are two groups in the past have teamed up on so many kind of political causes But now if you start seeing kind of a fracture there, that could be trouble for the left. So what do we think high schools should do when a student says, I'm transitioning, I still want to play sports? I think you let them play with their biological sex for as as long as they want to and they feel comfortable. And then we may get to a point where schools have individuals, so many individuals that they say, "Okay, we actually need to kind of start a separate league for transgender individuals that would be more of a I guess a co-ed league no I agree I mean I think this is why it gets so get so dicey if you will but but I mean because the truth is how many ways are we going to splinter it's how many different kind of track teams do we have but uh, it does get down to that I mean you know apples and apples orange and oranges when you start mixing all these things uh, you're, you're going to end up with troubles just like this one all right we're going to take a quick break but stay tuned because when we come back we'll be sharing lauren evans and kelsey bowler's interview with linda king founder of fix the hurt a nonprofit that raises awareness about domestic and teen dating violence through theatrical plays and presentations stay tuned what the heck is trickle down economics Does the military really need a Space Force? What is the meaning of American exceptionalism? I'm Michelle Cordero. I'm Tim Desher. And every week on the Heritage Explains podcast, we break down a hot-button policy issue in the news at a 101 level. Through an entertaining mix of personal stories, media clips, music, and interviews, we help you actually understand the issues. So do this. Subscribe to Heritage Explains on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts today. Welcome back. We are here with Linda King. Uh, Linda founded an organization called Fix the Hurt with her husband, John. uh, And the organization educates and raises awareness about domestic and teen dating violence through outreach and performing arts. Linda, this is a deeply personal issue for you. You lost your daughter to domestic violence. Can you tell us her story? Lisa was, um, she was the cutest, sweetest, most loving little girl. She did well in school. She had a lot of friends. She didn't date much in high school. Um, she, we lived in Florida. She went all the way across the country when she went to college. And um, she came back for Christmas break, and she came in one day and she told me she was going out with this young man. And we lived in a small town, and we knew a little bit about him and his family, and we had some concerns, but she was 20 years old, and so she certainly had the right to make her own choices. And uh, they became involved in a relationship. She went back to school, but they stayed in touch. Uh, When she came home her second year, Um, she decided that it was time for her to quit college and just move in with him, which is what she did, which was so uh, opposite from the way she had been brought up. Uh, He immediately became um, controlling, uh, not letting her see her friends and and not letting her associate with the people that she had grown up with, trying to keep her away from family, which these are all just red flags. And um, it didn't take long for the the violence to escalate and for her to become extremely abused. Um, They were off and on together for about nine years. The last three years they they had been married but they divorced and she moved from Florida to Texas 
um, he came and showed up at her doorstep. She led him back into her life, and six weeks later, he beat her to death. Wow. So she was 28 years old when she died. And what did you take from that, and how long did it take you to move from the grief to doing something meaningful with that grief? You know, that's an interesting story because almost immediately I was, because it was a high-profile case, almost immediately I was uh, being asked to speak in high schools and to tell Lisa's story and to um, find a way to, to help people understand what was going on in their lives. And so I took advantage of those opportunities and I did speak out and I, I began to understand some of the things that we did wrong, not saying I'm blaming myself for what happened, but there were some things that we could have done differently. And so that's pretty much the message that I try to convey. You know, parents tell their kids, don't drink alcohol, don't smoke, don't mess around with drugs, but they don't really teach them that much about healthy relationships and the things that they need to be aware of. For instance, if a, a, it's kind of a comical way of saying it, but if a boy pulls a girl's pigtails, then we say, oh, he was just flirting with you. He probably likes you. Well, no, that's not acceptable. That, that's not what we're, boys are supposed to do with girls. They're supposed to treat them with kindness and, and uh, respect. And so as we talk to girls and boys, because boys are victims of dating violence as well, then we... Uh, try to help parents to realize, to realize what the red flags are, what they need to watch out for, and how they can help. Because if kids don't talk to you, then you're not going to realize what's going on in their lives, and you're not going to learn to, to guide them in the proper way. Linda, can you tell us a little bit more about Fix the Hurt, and more specifically, what it means to do outreach and performing arts? Oh, okay. So as we uh, as my husband and I put this nonprofit organization together, we, you know, I, I went out and spoke, and, and my husband would would accompany me. We would go out and speak. We spoke at prisons a lot of the time. Wonderful opportunities uh, here in Arizona because we have Perryville Women's Prison, and so we we would go out and speak at prisons. And then uh, my husband actually said, you know, we need to we need to write a play. And uh, he and I both had a little bit of acting experience, but we didn't propose that we were going to be the actors because we wanted to make it a musical. Uh, because through the performing arts and through music, you can convey a truly powerful message. Um, because we had 13 original songs, we ha had the help of a very talented writer, a musician. Um, with these songs, you can. We have a country. We have um, a jazz. We have uh, just a ballad. We have uh, a blues. We have uh, 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 songs that are from all aspects of life, and so that that helps people to understand the message that this is just not something that happens in trailer trash. This is not something that happens uh, only with people with with financial problems. It happens in every every specter of life. And so as we developed this one play, Domestic Violence the Musical, and we have six actors in it, uh, there's dancing, there's acting, there's um, some really powerful messages. Uh, one of the most powerful songs in it is called Listen, Listen, and it helps people understand what their responsibility might be if they find someone in their life that's a victim. And then we moved on to um, teen dating violence and we wrote a, we produced another play entitled I Have This Friend and it talks about teen dating violence and things that are, that are important for you to be aware of there and ASU has just, um, we worked with ASU to just recently do a, um, a film on uh, I Have This Friend. We took the, the play and had it rewritten as a film and so they, they managed to do a really great job with that. And then we have a play entitled 23 Bruises, which is actually Lisa's story. And uh, for a few years, my husband and I performed in that. We played the roles of ourselves, our daughter and her abuser, and the judge and the bailiff. And um, we've just recently come to the point that we thought, we need to get somebody else to do this, and we'll speak out afterwards. So it's been a wonderful experience. We've had 
response from military because military and law enforcement have a huge um, percentage of people that are victims of domestic violence. It's 40% in, um, in those two areas where it's about 30%. One in three women will be in a violent relationship sometime in her life. And so we've traveled to, uh, we're going to Germany this year. We went to Japan a couple of years ago. We've been all the way from California to New York State uh, to different military organizations presenting this type of training, which does qualify with the military as training. And it's much more powerful than PowerPoint. If one in every three women in the United States is impacted by domestic violence, why don't you think we hear about it more often? And also, what are some of the red flags to look for? The reason we don't hear about it is because people want to hide behind closed doors. They're afraid to report. They're afraid of losing their financial security. They're afraid of losing uh, family members. They're afraid for their children. They don't want to be seen as a divorced parent. They don't want to be seen as the one that couldn't handle herself. Um, and many times it's just a matter of pride. And, and the, the uh, justice system, um, the man that, uh, that killed my daughter got 10 years in prison. And um, since he's been out, uh, he has offended, had domestic violence issues and offended six more times that he's been arrested and, and he goes in and then he gets out again. So our judicial system doesn't really take it as seriously as they need to. Wow. <clears throat> so why do these women or men date these violent people and, and why do they stay with them? Well, a guy doesn't ask you out on a date, um, take you to a movie and then punch you in the face. Um, they are very uh, methodical with their behaviors. They tell you how beautiful you are, how smart you are, um, how much they like you. They um, are very, especially in teen dating violence, they're very kind to your parents. And so parents are saying, you know, this is a really nice guy. And all the while he is trying to gain control. Um, we have instances that I, the girls have talked to me about where the, the, their boyfriend has given them a cell phone. And this is one of the one of the episodes that we use in one of our plays, where he, he gives you the, the cell phone. You just this is just for you and me. Take it. And then, about once a week, he'll grab your cell phone and look and see who you're texting, what you're talking about. If you're on Snapchat, if you're on Instagram, if you're posting things that he's not comfortable with, then he says, "I paid for it. I I get to see it," and he will encourage, um, boys often will encourage girls to, you don't need to be friends with her anymore. She's a bad influence on you. That was what one of the things that Sam did with Lisa. He isolated her from her friends and family. And uh, many times, um, girls are just flattered and they have a boyfriend, maybe for the first time, and they don't want to be seen as not being successful, as being a failure. And so those types of situations uh, come into play, and those are some of the red flags. The controlling behavior, the isolation, the, uh, the power that they have over you. Uh, many times drugs or alcohol are involved. And so there's, if, if, you're, if you're out with your boyfriend and, and you had a drink, and, and he's going to tell. And so you have to just mind yourself and, and behave the way you're supposed to and, and not let the things that, uh, that he threatens you bring you down. So if you spot these red flags and you're a family member or a friend, what is the best thing to do next? Let me talk first about the, the worst thing to do. The worst thing to do is to say, what is wrong with you? Why are you going out with that guy? Don't you know how bad he is for you? Can't you see what a terrible jerk he is? And that's what we did. We said, Lisa, have you lost your mind? Are you stupid? What's wrong with you? Well, he was telling her she was stupid, and we were telling her she was stupid for going out with him. So she thought she didn't have the ability to make decisions. And so she went with what was the lesser of the two evils, she thought. Um, so 
not criticizing the abuser because uh, your friend, your sister, whomever, will become defensive and they'll stop talking to you. The best thing you can do is listen. And we have the song that says, listen, 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 before anything you say. Uh, and when you do say something, tell her, you're a good friend. I'm concerned for your safety. You don't deserve to be treated that way. And that's the lyric, the beginning lyrics of one of the songs. And, and that's what you have to do. And you have to be willing to listen to some things that you are not comfortable with. But you also have to be patient because maybe you'll say, you know, I, I have a room, you can come stay with me. And, and she might say yes. But then two days later, she might leave. And then you become discouraged. And so a woman will leave an average of seven times before she leaves for good. So it's very important that you be supportive, that you don't feel like that you're taking this on as a lifetime situation, but that you are there to encourage her. Help her to understand what resources are available in the community. There are support groups that she can go to. Um, be, be willing to go with her to the police if she decides to file for an order of protection. Help her to understand that there's someone there that cares for her, that there's someone there that loves her. Many times, um, you know, teenage girls especially will not feel comfortable going to talk to their parents, but they need to talk to an adult. They need to find someone in their life, a school counselor or a big sister or, or a friend's mom that they can talk to and confide in, someone that will believe them. Because that's another important thing, that you not try to play down what she's telling you, that you believe her. Um, if she is overreacting, then that's going to come out. But for the most part, you have to be a friend. You have to be someone that she can depend on. So if someone wanted to find more information about Fix the Hurt or bring one of the plays to their school or office, uh, how, where can they find that information? Uh, we have a website. It's www.helpfixthehurt.org. We also have Instagram and we're on Twitter and, and also have a Facebook page. It's called uh, Fix the Hurt Performing Arts Group. Um, the Fix the Hurt website not only has Lisa's story, but has uh, we have blogs that we post with issues that are that we see in the community, and we have um, recommendations for people that they can get in touch with, or I always give out my cell phone number, and and I'm there if they want to call me. I've had girls to call me in the middle of the night and want to come over. Can I come over and and will you sit with me while I break up with my boyfriend? And she, she came over and she called, and I sat there beside her and held her hand, and I'm more than willing to do that because these girls are important. They need to know that there's help out there for them. And we've had many instances where people have uh, come up to us after they've seen the play and said, that's me, that is me. We had one instance where we were at a high school and there was a couple that was uh, sitting toward the back, and there was a, a teacher that was sitting behind them. And about halfway through the play, she turned to him and she said, you do that. You say those things to me. And he became so irate that he grabbed her. She had a notebook in her hand. He grabbed the notebook and ripped it in half and stomped out of the theater. Uh, fortunately, there was a, a teacher there close that could, could help her get through that. But people don't realize until it's in their face sometimes that they are suffering or that, that they have someone in their family that's suffering. We had a young boy, well, he wasn't young, he was 17 years old, and I was speaking in a classroom, and he raised his hand and he said, I, I just want to tell you that when I was seven years old that I would hear my mom and dad fight, and I knew what was going to happen, and he said, and I took my little sister in the bathroom and covered, she was three, and covered her head with towels so she wouldn't have to hear. We have children that see this in their home every day, and unless they get some information, they're going to perceive that as normal. And they're going to think that's what happens in relationships, and they're going to be satisfied with that, and they deserve more, be it boy or girl. Linda, thank you so much for joining us today, and thank you for all the work you do to help victims of domestic abuse. Thank you very much. Please have your listeners look at the website and, and give us a call. 
Looking for a short morning podcast to give you the news of the day without liberal bias? The Daily Signal podcast is a rundown of the top stories you need to know that the mainstream media is probably ignoring. It's now time to crown our problematic woman of the week. But instead of just one, this week we are crowning three courageous young ladies, Chelsea Mitchell, Alana Smith, and Selena Soule. As we discussed earlier in the show, these high school girls have filed a lawsuit that they hope will prohibit biological males from competing in women's sports. Their action could play a critical role in women all over America achieving their dreams of winning state championships, competing in professional sports, and receiving scholarships. We could go on and on. So congratulations to Chelsea, Alana, and Selena. These three ladies are truly problematic women. I'll just add that I think these three girls are so courageous because they are probably not going to see the fruits of this lawsuit. They are probably, you know, unfortunately aging out. I think one is a senior, one is a sophomore. I'm not sure about the third one. You know, whatever college scholarships they didn't get, they're not getting. And they're really doing this, I think, for the women in the future and putting their own names and reputations at risk. That's really admirable. It is admirable. It's truly sacrificial. So we applaud them and we'll be sure to keep you all updated on the lawsuit and how things are moving forward. So we are going to leave it there for today. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition of Problematic Women, which I'm sure will feature Lauren Evans telling us (laughs) just how cute the new little one in our family is. Yeah, no doubt. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. Conservatives really do need your support in the podcast world, and we would greatly appreciate a five-star review on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It makes such a huge difference. We hope you have a great week. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal produced by Kelsey Bowler, Lauren Evans, and Virginia Allen. Special thanks to our editor-in-chief, Katrina Trinko. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.